We do pray that we could praise you even in our fumbling attempts, even though it's so inadequate for what you're worth. God, we pray that you would help us do honor to you, give glory to your great name. God, we know, we know that we could never offer you what you deserve. And yet, like this song says, it's your breath that is in our lungs. It's you who's given us life. And so we, in return, offer back whatever meager thing we have to offer. This life, our, our hopes and our dreams, our, our choices and our thoughts, God, we offer it all before you. Like Romans 12 says, as a living sacrifice, we lay our lives before you, God. I pray tonight that you would, as you have... Make yourself known as we study your word. Lord, and when we think about the story of Joseph and think about the fact that you seem so far in the background, it, you're not speaking like you did to Jacob. You're not saying all these things, and yet the text is clear. You are at work. You're moving. And Lord, all too often we forget that. We forget in the day-to-day grind of our lives. We forget when we're not seeking you or hearing you or when it feels like you're far from us, we forget you're still on the move. You're still at work. You're still going. You're still changing lives. You're still touching our hearts. You're interceding for us with words too deep for groans like Romans 8 says. Lord, we know that you are a God who is at work, just like Jesus said. My Father is at work, and so I too must be. Lord, we pray that we would have that same heart, that same mentality, that we would be at work. We'd be doing your will. We'd be loving on people. We'd be inviting them into your kingdom. We'd be reminding them that there is a life greater than what it is to live life without you, Jesus. That life now can be full of joy. It can be full of hope. It can be full of of good. And Lord, people need to hear that in these days. They need to hear the message of Jesus. Would you make us bold to share it? Would you make us confident in a world that all too often, if you look at it with unspiritual eyes, it can look like everything's going wrong. It can look like, where could God be in this? We know that you're at work. We know it because we can see with the eyes that you've given us, Lord. Help us to be at work too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So good to see you all tonight. We're now in Genesis 39. If you have your Bibles, again, you feel free to turn to Genesis 39. If you don't, the words will be on the screen. This week we'll do Genesis 39, verses 1 to 20. I've titled this sermon, Everything He Touched. Everything He Touched. That'll make sense as we go on. But Genesis 39, we won't read the whole chapter, we'll just do verses 1 to 20. And next week we'll pick up the last few verses. But here we start in Genesis 39. And now remember, last week when we talked about Judah and Tamar, we talked about Genesis 38. Remember, we we mentioned that this was an interlude, but it was also necessary. 
It was, it was cutting away from the story of Joseph, but it explained something that was important about who Judah was and who he was becoming, how God had changed his heart through the work of Tamar, really, that Tamar had confronted him with his own evil, and it changed Judah. He became a different man, and we'll see that later on in the story. But, but remember, that, that event of Judah and Tamar, that story takes place over many years to the point that, remember, two of his sons die, and the third becomes a man. And then Tamar actually has two children, right? She, the end of the account is that she bears two children. So a significant amount of time has passed. Well, what's been going on with Joseph while the story of Judah and Tamar happened? Well, these two things, Judah and Tamar and Joseph's story, are happening simultaneously. And so we're kind of jumping back in time here to, to Joseph's story. What happened after he was sold? According to Genesis 37, the last thing we saw with Joseph was that he was just sold. He had just been sold off. And that uh, a, a royal official, right, Potiphar, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who his brothers had sold him to. And so that's where we left off with Joseph. And then we have the interlude of Judah and Tamar. And now we're back to the Joseph story. So we're jumping back in time to see what happened to Joseph. So then here is Genesis 39 starts this way. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now, in just that brief synopsis, we see a lot about Joseph in his life. One, we see most importantly that he is not alone. Like I talked about in my prayer and like we talked about when, when we went through Genesis 37, this is a man who the Lord walks with. The Lord was with Joseph and what does God's presence bring? I'm not saying these are equivalent ideas, but it's clear that, that they're tied, they're united, which is blessing. God's presence, almost just by nature of who he is, it, it brings blessing. The Lord is there, so Joseph is successful at what he does. He's a successful man. We'll see it in the next verse, and I'll come back to it, but he's a successful man. What he does is prosperous. And it says he was in the house. Now remember, he's a slave. So regardless of what we think about his success, he is in a position in which his life is not easy. He is a slave. Now particularly, he's a house slave, which is interesting. That's actually not the lowest level of slave. In fact, the lowest level of slave would be if Joseph was sent out into the fields to work the fields, to, to harvest the crops, to, to do some field work. It was actually a, a position of a little bit more honor to be in the house, to be the, the house slave. 
So he is already had some lifting up. He's not out in the fields. He's put into the house. Verse 3. Now his master, this is Potiphar, his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Joseph, the the successful man, he's so successful that even the pagans notice it. This Egyptian master sees that the Lord is with Joseph. He can recognize it. And not only does he see that the Lord, Joseph's God, is with him, but he sees that the Lord is making him successful. In fact, it says, that everything, it, the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. I think it's the NIV that translates it, that everything he touched prospered. It's like nothing this guy does can go wrong. Like everything he does, it just, it's like the magic touch, right? It's almost like the Midas touch. You've, you know that story, right? King Midas with the golden hand and everything he touched turns to gold. That's Joseph. Everything he does is just flourishes. It's just beautiful and and wonderful, and God is blessing it. But he's still a slave. The circumstance of his situation doesn't totally match what the Lord seems to be doing in his life. This prosperous man. So Joseph, because he's prospering and everything's going well, it says Joseph found favor in the sight of his master, and he became his personal servant, his personal attendant. So he's promoted. He was a house slave, and now he's kind of like his, this is a little anachronistic, but he's, he's, he's his butler. He's his personal steward. He's the one who's attending to him specifically. And, and just right off the bat, it doesn't even tell you what else, but he's getting another promotion. Not only did he become his personal servant, now he's made overseer over his house. And everything that Potiphar owned, Potiphar put in Joseph's charge. So in just the span of this verse, he, he's, been, he's just constantly succeeding. He keeps putting up and up and up. He was... Put up, he's not in the fields, he's in the house. And now he's the personal attendant. And now he's the overseer of everything in the house. Why? Because Potiphar knows that Joseph is going to succeed. Everything he touched flourished. Everything he touched prospered. And so Potiphar lifts him up because of that. You think it's going to go real well for Joseph. It sounds like things are going great. He's just on the rise, just keeps going up. Nothing he does can go wrong, it seems like. But it came about from that time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, that the Lord now blessed the Egyptian's house. On account of Joseph, thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that Potiphar owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Man, Joseph is just phenomenal. 
And Joseph is fulfilling the promises, isn't he? Right? We've been tracking the land. We've been tracking the seed. We've been tracking the blessing. What was the promise to Abraham? That you would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Joseph's fulfilling the promise. Because the Egyptians being blessed. The Egyptians not being blessed on account of the Egyptian being a great man or being godly or, or worshiping the Lord. No, he's being blessed on account of Joseph. Joseph's blessing is so great, it's so prosperous, it's so successful, it overflows to those around him. The Egyptian, his master, is being blessed because of Joseph. And guess what? Not only that, he's a good-looking dude. Now, he was handsome in form and appearance. This phrase only shows up one other time in the Old Testament, in the entire Old Testament. Handsome in form and appearance, or beautiful in form and appearance. The only other person it's said of in the entire Old Testament is of Rachel. He looks like his mama. He's reminiscent of his mother. And what that means is he's gorgeous. He's handsome. He's nice to look at. The only two people in the Old Testament that this is said about. He is lovely. Now, you kind of sit here and you're like, man, Joseph's got it all. He, he can't fail. Everything he does is great. And the dude has to look good, too. He can't, he can't be an ugly, successful guy. He's got to be the, one of the handsomest people that we, we hear about in Scripture, too. Yeah, but this is not a good sign. This is foreshadowing. Something's about to go awry. Because Joseph is a godly man. A good-looking man, but a godly man. And it's telling us of his beauty for a reason. Now, it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And he said, and she said, lie with me. Lie with me. She is filled with lust, looking at Joseph's handsome appearance, his beautiful form. And so she says to her slave. Now remember, this is interesting because it puts him in a very precarious position. Because as the master's wife, she is his mistress. I use that in the terms of, of a female master. She is his mistress, the one who is in charge of him. It's, it's arguable that he may not have the authority to refuse what she commands. Except that he knows his master would be displeased by it. That's what he has to, to lean back on. But she's saying, come lie with me. Sleep with me. But Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Now, 
Joseph is a righteous man. A man who flees from this lustful temptation, we're going to see, right? But here's one thing that I think is often missed in the story. This story, to me, when I hear this story, I sometimes can't help but think of it as a youth group story. Because I've heard this story so many times in youth group, and it's always used as flee from from lust, that that flee from lust. Like, any time a situation comes up in which lust is there, you just got to run from it, you got to flee. Here's the problem with that in this story. Joseph's got nowhere to go. He's a slave. Where can he run from this temptation? The answer is nowhere. He's got no choice except to stand strong and be righteous despite it. He can't run away. He can't leave the property because he is property. His master's property. So not only does this happen where he he says, no, I can't do this, but it happens every day. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. It seems like she is just looking for a way. Just, it's okay. Just, just come spend some time alone with me. We don't have to do anything. Just come, come be with me. She's lessened her demands. But it happened. There was one day that there was no one in the household when he went in to do his work. None of the men of the household were there inside. And she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. That word caught, that's a typically violent word. It's used for when people are fleeing in battle and they're seized by someone. This is a surprise. This is a shock. She's gripping him. This is is forceful. This is not uh, loving. (laughs) This is not intimate. This is force. It's a violent action. She's commanding him. She's, She's pressuring him. And so he just leaves his garment in her hand and he flees. And he went outside to the field. And Joseph, successful Joseph, everything is flourishing. Just has this awful situation put upon him. But it's not enough that Joseph is, is having this sin constantly put in his face that he wants no part of. The master's wife starts to realize, hey, this could go real wrong for me too. So when she saw that Joseph had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called the men of her household. She called the other slaves. She called in the other slaves, those who were not inside and they had seen nothing. She calls them in, and she said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to make sport of us, to make fun of us. And he came in to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that, I raised my voice and screamed. He left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Now, what's interesting about this, she's clearly working her angle with these slaves because she says, he has brought in this Hebrew to us. Who is the he in that sentence? That's Potiphar, her husband. 
She's working the angle. She's saying all the rest of her slaves presumably are either Egyptian or not Hebrew, whatever the case. And so she can delineate Joseph and say, look at this foreigner. Look at this Hebrew he brought in to make fun of us, to mock us. Can you believe that? Can you believe he did that? She's siding with the slaves, right? She's using that angle. Can you believe Potiphar would do that to us? She's the master's wife. She's not in the same situation, but she's trying to find some sympathy. Can you believe Potiphar would do that to us and bring in this Hebrew to make fun of us, to make sport of us? What's interesting is that word, make fun of, is sahak. It's the the name of Isaac. Remember, we, we talked about that word, Yitzhak, Isaac. And remember, it's used euphemistically I think in Genesis 26, it's, six, it's used euphemistically for Isaac and his wife being intimate. So it's possible she's alluding to the fact that, that he, he tried to bring this person in to, to kind of sexually assault her, to, to, to use in a, a mocking sexual way. That's kind of what she's insinuating here. That's how the word has been used in Genesis, to mock us. So she, she's got her plan, and it seems to be going okay so far. But, of course, the big question is what's going to happen when Potiphar returns. So when Potiphar returned, she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us, he came into me to make sport of me. Again, ambiguous language about whether or not she was raped. Come into me, went into her, That's the typical euphemism for sexual intercourse in the book of Genesis. It says it over and over. Remember, Abraham went into her when he goes into the tent to be with Hagar. It's a consistent euphemism. So she leaves it ambiguous. Okay, now the master doesn't know. Potiphar doesn't know. Was she raped? Was was there just an attempt? What's going on? It's meant, her, her words are meant to inflame his anger. To, to, to leave the, the sense that he has done a deep, deep wrong against her. But she's also changed her, her tune a little bit, right? No more is the he brought into it. She's less accusatory, isn't she? She's working the angle with Potiphar as well. She still mentions it. Oh, oh the slave you brought in. She still throws that out there. But he's, he's done this. He's done this great evil. So when his master heard it, when he heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and he put him in the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And Joseph was there in the jail. Now, That's all we're looking at for the text tonight. And and it seems kind of small and short, and it's this story we know pretty well. It's a pretty common story you hear out of Genesis of what happens with Joseph. And and we see the tragedy of it. We, We see how we can't walk away and not be like, Joseph was so wrong. And we think about the last time we saw Joseph. What happened there? His brothers. 
They sold him into slavery. They put him in a pit and they had lunch while he sat there and wept and begged for mercy. Like, can this kid just not catch a break or what? Look at the circumstances of his life. Think for a moment, if you can, try to put the rest of the biblical story out of your mind. One thing, if you have some biblical literacy, if you've read the Bible for a long time, sometimes it's actually a hindrance to us that we know how these stories go because we're so familiar with them. Sometimes you have to inhabit them. You have to put yourself there and, and remember, okay, I don't, let's say for a second, I don't know the ending. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm in Joseph's shoes. That's where I'm at. And don't think about what's going to happen. Then we know the ending. We know the, the trajectory. Just sit in, in this moment. Joseph's life is hellish. He's a kid who was daddy's favorite. And everyone hated him for it. Which was not his design. It was not his design to be daddy's favorite. His mother is dead. She died in childbirth with his brother. And he's a man now, but he's a young man. A young man. His brothers, they're all older. He's the baby, except for Benjamin, who's still really not even a man yet at this point. Joseph is the youngest of the, of the men of the family. He's the baby. And he goes out to check on his brothers and they hate him with such a passion. It's already told us they can't even speak civilly to him. They cannot speak a friendly word. And they grab him. They see him from a distance. And when he gets to them, they don't even wait. They don't even say anything. They just grab him and they rip his special tunic off, this multicolored garment. They take it and they rip it off him and they throw him in a pit and they say, let's kill the kid. Let's rid ourselves of him. Get rid of him. Let's see how well his dreams come true when he's rotting in a pit. And Judah says, oh, hold on. Let's not kill him. Let's make some money off his hide. (laughs) Let's sell him. Let's get rid of him. That'll take care of two birds with one stone. One... We get rid of him. We'll never have to see him again for the rest of our lives. But, too, at least we're going to make some money, too. We gain something from this. Joseph, imagine the trauma of that. Imagine the trauma of your family selling you into slavery. And Joseph goes, and he's not even over the trauma of his family. And he's in a position now where he's a slave and he's having to do things that are probably feel beneath him. Things he never would have had to do as a shepherd. He's working the life of a servant, of a slave, and and, and things that he never thought he'd be doing in a situation he never thought he'd find himself in. And still reeling every day as he thinks about, he's just, I'm sure he can hear it over and over, the words of his brothers. Let's kill him. Just kill him and be done with it. Let's see what become of his dreams. 
And that just plays in his head over and over. And then what? He's doing the work of a slave, and, and, and yet he's successful at it. Even with all the trauma, with all the pain, he's successful. And he's doing good work. And his master all of a sudden is, is elevating him. And his master is just making money hand over foot because of this kid. He's, he's just successful. His household's going great. Everything is, is running smoothly. Joseph's not seeing any of that. He's not receiving anything from that. Potiphar's gaining off of Joseph's back. And then beyond that, Potiphar's wife just can't stop staring at him, can't stop prodding at him, can't stop trying to be in his presence every second because he knows her intention. And he can't escape it. Because he's got nowhere to go, and all he wants to do is to just honor God and not sin against his master. He recognizes his situation could be a lot worse, and his master's been good to him. So he tries to just stay out of the way. And yet she cannot quit harassing him. And finally the day comes where she won't take no for an answer. She's going to force her way. And he... He overpowers her and he's able to run away, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. He's like, well, how is this situation going to play out? And of course, it plays out in the worst way possible. Potiphar's wife lies to him. Says, no, he tried to rape me. And Joseph ends up in a prison cell, which is not like our prisons. It's not nice. This is, you know, I'm not saying our prisons are a good thing or nice or whatever, but I mean, Ancient prisons, incomparable to modern prisons. <laughs> Joseph's in, just rotting away in a cell now. Imagine you're there after everything I just described. Imagine being in Joseph's shoes. What would you ask? What would you think? I mean, you think Joseph thought, how did my life get here? If I look back even a year ago, where was I? What transpired that took me from where I was here to where I am now? And most importantly, where is God Where is God in this? Is he not with me? Does he not walk beside me? Why am I languishing here? Aaron, will you come up and just play behind as we close? I'm not going to leave you there. It'd be cool if one day I was brave enough to just walk off after that. I'm not. I'm not. It's a true question, though. Where is God in the life of Joseph? The heading we saw of this chapter, what, what started it, 
was the Lord was with Joseph. And everything he touched prospered. Everything he put his hand to flourished. Now I know I stopped this before the end of the chapter, and that was intentional. It was intentional because I wanted you to think about where Joseph was at. Because if you go to the next verse, it's almost you just gloss over this. And you immediately remember, oh, God's with him again. Because it says it again, it repeats it. And all of a sudden he's getting promoted again in the prison. But I don't want us to go there yet. We'll go there next week. Where I want us to sit is to think about where Joseph was in that moment. His whole life has blown up in front of his eyes. Even the life he had as a slave has blown up. How much lower can I sink, God? How much lower can you take me? Well, we've got to hold intention, and it's true of our lives too, is that these outer circumstances, these outer realities, the externals of what our situation is, are not necessarily indicative of whether God is with us. And frankly, it's not even indicative of whether we're successful, or whether we're prospering. See, one of the things that's so, in my opinion, that's so insidious about the prosperity gospel or that idea of that is that everything has to look good in your life. Somehow success has come to mean in that style of thinking, in that style of, of the gospel that you hear preached in that reality, which in my opinion is not the fullness of the depth of the gospel, What is missed is that the externals can look like Joseph. It doesn't necessarily look like everything is going well and God's given you ten times back money of what you put in the bin. It doesn't look like that. Because the text can tell us, like tonight, that God was with Joseph. And Joseph, is he's rotting in a cell. He was sold into slavery. He was accused of being a rapist. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong for this kid. And yet, everything he touched succeeded. It flourished. It prospered. How can we connect those two realities Unless we stop looking at success through a worldly lens. Because we've got a vision in our mind. And and I know that I have it for my own life even. And I know that every one of us has a vision of what success looks like to us. Where we want to be. Man, I'm just not as far as I wanted to be. I I wish I would have been done with school already. I wish I would have had... A, a better job. I wish I would have done this and done that. I, all these things that look like success and that the world would point to and go, that is successful. Look at this person. I know success when I see it. It's that. And the world's got all these standards that they can point to. And look at the checklist. Look at, look at their car. 
Look at their home. Look at their face. They're beautiful in form and appearance, just like Joseph. He must be successful. There's a standard of what it means to be blessed, of what it means to flourish, of what it means to be successful. That is godly, that comes from God. And I would argue that more often than not, it looks nothing like what the world's definition of success is. The truth is that Joseph is rotting in a prison cell, and yet he is successful. Joseph is sold into slavery and he is successful. He is accused of being a rapist, totally unfounded, totally a lie. And somehow he's successful. He's a model for us as Christians. Because the Lord walked with him. He was a success. And everything he touched prospered. And equally so, we know this because we know the end. I know you know the end. We know that God had a plan that went beyond Joseph's circumstances. And all too often we get caught up in what the external reality of what we're living with right now. I know these are dark days. And people are in dark situations. And there is darkness coming. And it is not easy and it is not fun. And it is not a nice situation to live in the world as it is today. And there are many people, even tomorrow, many people are going to lose their job. I mean, all of that reality, all of that stuff sticks with us. And we can, all we can see is just the external reality of what is going on. And all too often we can't recognize that God's at work. Just like I prayed. He is at work. We know He is. He does not grow tired or weary like a man. He's at work. And I pray, my prayer is that whatever dark situation you're in today, Whatever dark situation someone you love or someone you know is in today, that you'd remind them that there's a way to be successful that doesn't look like the world. That is actually the Lord who walks with you, who prospers what you do. And when everything on the outside looks like it's going down and down and down. Inwardly, you can be on the up and up and up. So the Lord is with you. He's not abandoned you. He's not left you. But He's with you. You know, for me, as 
success looks like 10 of us in this room tonight. I'll be honest. I, I of course, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I wish there was 100 of us here to worship together and to praise God and to hear from his word. But I know I know that the world would look at that and be like, Jeremy's successful. Look at, look at what he was able to accomplish. But that's not my measure of success. And to me, the ten of us in this room is just as much as a success as, as anything else could be. Because I know that the Lord's here with us. I know that he walks with us. And I know that everything we do, when we're living our life, and we're walking our paths, and we're trying to follow God to the best we can, the best of our ability, I know that he's making what we do prosper. He's making us fruitful and multiply. He's doing the work of of blessing. I pray if you are are feeling that tonight, if if you're feeling like you haven't been a success, if you're feeling like you're not where you wanted to be, if you're feeling like I just can't catch a break, my prayer is tonight that you look for the moments, look for the spots at which God is prospering you. That you'd be reminded that he is with you. And that you would see that you would see that he's at work. That he's at work in your life because he's the one who makes you prosperous. He's the one who makes you a success. He's the one that can give you that identity. Tyler, will you come up here and pray for us tonight?